The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll discuss the IPO market with Kava going public later this week. Are we finally starting to see groomed shoots sprouting after a very long drought. Plus, we'll talk broader markets this summer. One expert is seeing potential for a major FOMO, fear of missing out, equity market rally, though inflows are still pretty thin. And we'll drill down on the impact on rates from the Federal Reserve's big decision on Wednesday. Here's my conversation with Matt Kennedy, Senior IPO Market Strategist for Renaissance Capital, Todd Sohn, Head of ETF and Technical Strategy at Strategus Securities, and Kyla Scanlon, the founder of financial education company, Bread. Matt, you know, we, you and I have been doing this for a few years. It's often said the most important precursor for a return of IPOs is a strong stock market. S&P, we're hoping for a 52-week high closed today. Is this the moment we've been waiting for? Is this what it's going to take to get the IPO market back on track? I think so. Uh, we do see a light at the end of the tunnel. All the pieces are finally in place for a pickup in the second half. You know, the main driver of new issuance is returns, and the Renaissance IPO index is up more than 25% year to date. So investors are making money in IPOs. That return is more than double the S&P 500. Outperformance is the fuel that powers the IPO issuance engine. So if returns hold up, activity should gradually return, and I think it will be gradual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. But the market, the strong market is not the only thing helping here. Potential valuations of IPO candidates. So we saw that with Kava. They they talked about 17 to 19 last week. This morning, it's 19 to 20. I mean, Mm -hmm. isn't that going to get the attention of other IPO candidates out there? Absolutely. There is a huge pipeline of IPOs that are just kind of in wait and see mode. And they're they're anxiously watching the market, looking at uh, dynamics like this. And I think that that looks like a green light for them, for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned the Renaissance Capital IPO. It was a disastrous 2022. Let's not bring it up. Uh, It beat the S&P, what, 25 percent so far this year? It's up and 12 percent for the S&P. So it's it's got a great start. Uh, Mm -hmm. Major holdings are all the old tech holdovers, uh, you know, Snowflake, Airbnb, Palantir, DoorDash, are all the major holdings here, uh, all benefiting from the tech revival. So it Mm -hmm. seems to me it's the soft landing scenario dominating the market in 2023. And that's sort of been the the big help, uh, in addition to the fact that tech's been strong, right? That's right. And uh, many of these names are benefiting from the AI revolution. They're uh, in the AI space, like Palantir, and that's kind of the perfect storm happening. Uh, But, you know, we we do see them being replaced by uh, some strong companies coming up. Uh, you know, Kenview recent IPO uh, is eligible for addition to our index. Uh, Kava as well. Yep. So the IPO, Matt, uh, we're up 25% this year, as you mentioned. Um, what about next? What What's going to happen next? I mean, I, I said I wasn't going to talk about right. last year, which is a disaster, but I want to just note the numbers were horrible. Uh, 7.7 billion was raised. Uh, for people who don't follow this, typically we'll see 50, 60, 70 billion raised. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're at the halfway point this year. We've raised a little more than $7 billion, close to $8 billion. Um, it, 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 is this going to change in the next few weeks? I'm trying to figure out whether these two facts, Kava raising the price and S&P at a new high, is going to open the floodgates. I think that it will, you know, the way they th- these things always work is it has to be a string of successes. And I think it's going to be uh, one or two deals this week and then two or three deals and then three or four uh, by the end of the year, we are hoping for a much more normal-looking market, uh, and certainly heading into 2024, if these returns hold up. Well, let's hope so. The list of companies waiting to go public is as long as my arm. It's uh, Fogo right. de Chao. We've, uh, that, that's been out there for, what, a year and a half right now. That's another restaurant company. Reddit's mm-hmm. been out there. Uh, Instacart's been out there forever. Uh, mm-hmm. The British semiconductor giant arm, that could be the biggest one in, in years. I, heaven knows, that could be a $30, $40, 50000000000 billion valuation. Uh, mm-hmm. pan, and then there's hopefuls. Uh, look at this list here. Panera Bread, Stripe, Impossible Foods, Fanatics, Flipkart, StubHub. A long list here. It, it, I know you don't like doing this or me putting on the spot, but who might be next? I think Fogo is a natural candidate. It's been on file, and if... Kava does well on its first day. That will certainly give it the green light. And maybe some other restaurant IPOs, too, uh, like Panera. Uh, Beyond that, you know, there are some smaller, less well-known names in industries that are doing well, like biotech, energy, uh, insurance. As for those huge tech unicorns, I think we'll see a few companies in the second half, but really, uh, I think more like 2024. Those still need time to grow into their valuations and kind of pivot to profitability. 2024. I'm just trying to, you know, get through the first half of the year at this point. <laughs> you got to temper your expectations a bit. Uh, uh, but then again, you know, I'm in the I'm in the business of, you know, making stories out of things. So I'm, I'm actually more optimistic than you might be, Matt, uh, at this point. But thank you very much, Matt. Always appreciate uh, your thoughts. Good to chat with you. Let's broaden out the ETF conversation. Bring in Todd Sohn. He's the head of ETF and technical strategy at Strategic Securities. Todd's there's a lot of moving parts stocks, bonds, and ETFs these days. You had a great piece out uh, last week. We have the S&P breaking maybe to a new 52-week high. We'll see right if that there. happens today. <laughs> You've written that with equities continuing to improve, the potential for a FOMO tidal wave is building. What, what, what is that? So, so, and fair, uh, oddly enough, today's the eighth, uh, eighth month since the October low, June 12th. And what stands out to us is the sheer amount of money that has gone to money market funds since that low, right? And given you're at 5% yields right. with no volatility, that's great. Um, but you're at a ratio of 15 times to what you're seeing in equity flows, particularly since the regional banking episode has happened. And so I think a lot of folks, investors are off sides in terms of their positioning. They don't believe in this rally. It's a very uncommon bottom if this is the bottom, right? You mm-hmm. haven't really didn't have the broad-based surge. didn't really have much of a dash for trash, right? Small caps are still lagging behind. Um, but the more, the further and further away you get from 4325, that's the last August right. high, I think that FOMO case is really going to build and investors are going to realize that they're underweight equities and need to catch up. Perhaps some of that money comes from money market funds. Too. You know, why is it that equity inflows have been so anemic this year? And you might say, well, everything else because tech has outperformed, but mm-hmm. tech ETF inflows have been yeah. even negative, even the QQQs, XLK, the technology ETFs, e- e- even uh, Kathy Wood, the, the ARC funds. It's very strange. There's a lot of disbelief towards this tech rebound. I think everyone has this mindset of the Fed's not done with their interest rate hikes and that's going to negatively impact these names. 
and that it can take years for them to rebound in terms of leadership, right? That's what happened in the tech bubble. Well, this, we're in a different scenario now. Um, and, and I just think a lot of folks were burned last year. 2022 was a rough, rough year. And so you're not seeing the flow breath in terms of all the corners around in the market. You know, a lot of these products are not getting influenced. The Maddox are particularly not seeing much of a bite. And I think that's really why you're seeing such anemic inflows overall. I keep talking about the pain trade being higher. The pain trade exists in the ETF business, too. I mean, people Absolutely. are off sides. They don't believe in they, they don't believe in the rally. They don't believe that they we're not that we're not going to have some horrible recession. And so they're positioned the wrong way. And as the market keeps rising, it eventually forces people back in that are active traders. You're going to have to. And I do think that the money market, component, some of that money will be sticky, right? Because everyone's happy with 5% yields. That's halfway to a decent yeah. equity year. But those who are more actively in tr uh, trading involved are going to have to take money out, and that's going to help boost. We equities. started out the year with all the wags saying, oh, this is going to be the year when the, act, the equal weight ETF is yeah. going to outperform the RSP because that's more value-oriented. But as you pointed out, it, it's underperformed. And, but that happens a lot, right? People try to think they can pick these things and say, oh, you know, there's a reason that market cap S&P 500 is, is the standard and not equal weight. There's a reason yeah. for that. I, I can under, I'm sympathetic to the idea of equal weight because it allows you to get a little bit more diverse exposure. But as you say, the, the market is voting yeah. for Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, these uh. top five weights. And... I know there's a lot of consternation, right? Top five stocks are almost a quarter of the index. But this is how market cap weighted indices work. The biggest names and the best players yeah. are supposed to have the greatest influence. Now, if you're just trying to gauge market health, that's where the equal S&P 500 comes in. That's where the VXF, the Vanguard yeah. Extended Market Fund comes in, just right. to judge how participation's going. But it's real. I mean, this is a, a dream for passive, and it's a, a nightmare for active investors right now. And small caps are finally starting to do better, but only recently. In the last few weeks, since, frankly, the jobs report, we right. started seeing small caps. This is a sign that people are starting to quasi-believe the soft landing, but it's, I wouldn't say it's convincingly turned around. It, small caps are tough because they have too many regional banks yeah. that are struggling, and they have a lot of boom-and-bust biotech. So if the IPO market gets running again, maybe that helps biotech, and that should help lift small caps. So... You know, you can get your beta exposure for small caps, IJR, SP, uh, SM, I want to say from State Street. But if you wanted to go a little bit different exposure and you want more discretionary and industrials, uh, RWJ, it's a revenue-weighted small cap yeah. ETF. So you're getting away from the banks, you're getting away from healthcare. I think that's interesting. And I would also consider global small caps. They've yeah. acted way better than U.S. small caps because they're more cyclically oriented. And perhaps that's saying the recession case is, is not happening this year. I want to bring in a uh, new guest to ETF Edge. Kyla Scanlon is the founder of financial education company Bread. We met while I was promoting my book on Josh Brown's podcast several months ago. I was impressed with what I heard, and we've invited her on the show. Kyla, welcome to ETF Edge. Thanks for uh, having me. Oh, thank you for coming. Uh, tell us about Bread. So Bread is sort of an idea still. Um, it's this idea that we have to sort of gamify financial education specifically. Um, and so you can see what I'm doing with my TikToks and my newsletter. It's all about how do we get people involved in the economy at large, and that's what Bread is around. Yeah. You mentioned TikTok, and yeah. you, you, you don't know this, but she's a bit of a social media phenomenon <laughs> on YouTube, on TikTok, on Twitter. Uh, you got a podcast. I do. Let's yeah. appreciate. It, I think it's called. Yeah, Is that exactly. right? Uh, you've got a newsletter. I do have a newsletter. She's, yeah. she's an economy by herself. <laughs> so, uh, tell me how you're doing this. I mean, I've been doing financial literacy for th more than 30 years at CNBC, but it's hard. How do you communicate ideas about financial literacy 
uh, and financial education in social media these days? So I think there's two threads to it. You have to make it fun. And so I do different skits where I'll pretend to be Jerome Powell, pretend to be different stocks. And that really gets people involved because they're like, oh, that's funny. I can look at that and laugh. And then I think the other part is incorporating philosophy, incorporating different poems. And that really humanizes finance and brings people in in a way that they normally wouldn't expect. Yeah, you, you, there's all sorts of interesting topics you've ca tackled. Um, are we manifesting a recession? A recession? Um, using Home Depot as an economic indicator. Uh, what's going on in crypto? It, all sorts of interesting. But one of the things you do is she, she creates these daily short form videos to explain the economy. I'm always amazed. Like you can point things you know at yourself and do 30 seconds on the economy. Is is tell us about how you do that. Is that the way to get across to to, to younger people? Is that how how they're communicating? I mean, yeah. what? Tell well, us about your so I think business. I think that there's a couple ways to think about it, right? Like TikTok, you do it every day because people are going to watch it pretty much every day. And the more iterations that you have, the more likely that you are going to hit people. Um, and then I have such a breadth of content because I want people who learn different ways to have access to whatever they need. So if they want to watch a video, they have that. If they like reading, they have that. If they like listening to podcasts, they have that. So it's just like how many iterations can you have with people and how can you make it as fun as possible? It's yeah. exhausting being an industry to yourself, isn't it? I mean, it's it's difficult. People talk to me all the time about, oh, I don't want to be a journalist anymore. I just want to, you know, point a, a, a phone at myself and become a TikTok star. But it isn't that simple, no. is it? I mean, if you didn't have something important to say, you you wouldn't become an influencer, which is a word I don't like anymore. Can we get an, is there a better word for influencer that we can start using? I say educator for myself, oh, ed yeah. Uh -huh. Or creator is nice too. Uh -huh. um, I think influencer is valuable. I just don't think when you think about finance and the economy, you're not necessarily influencing people, you're educating them, you're helping them along a journey that they're going down alone. Right. You're just alongside them. Right. I think influencing is a hierarchy. But getting back to my point, it's a lot harder as a, financial literacy, maybe you're not doing fashion, but it's a lot harder to do that and be successful. And I guess the question is, it's not just you pointing you know, your phone at yourself and talking. Yeah. What is it to keep people engaged? How do you get at that? Well, I think there's like two threads again. Like I think one aspect is always iterating on the style of content. So I recently started doing whiteboard series where I'll draw it, right? And before that, I was doing talking head series where I would just talk into the camera. Before that, I was doing a lot of skip-based stuff where I'd pretend to be different things. Um, but I think it's just like trying different things and seeing what resonates with people um, and just being creative in that journey. Because finance is so fun. You can be so creative with it. We just don't always do that. Yeah. Todd, how about you? How about your TikTok, uh, you know, 30-second videos? I, don't, I, I wish I had as much of a following as Kyla. <laughs> um, but I will say, I, she mentioned the word humanize yeah. finance. And I think that translates to ETFs in a way. ETFs have democratized, humanized investing. It's allowed access at a low-cost uh, fee for everyone around the globe to get involved. And so what I think she's doing is tremendous for the, the average person. Those of you who want to know numbers, 156,000 followers on Twitter, that, that's pretty good for finance. I've been on Twitter for 15 years. I, I probably have 120,000. You have more than I do. Not that that annoys me <laughs> at all. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering how did you do that. Uh, but it impresses me a lot that you're trying to figure that out. So what, what's important to, the, to your community these days in, in the financial area? What what's gets them going? 
I mean, I think it's a lot about the Federal Reserve. Like, what is the Federal Reserve doing? How does that impact them? What does the labor market look like? You know, I have a lot of young people like myself that follow me and they're like, well, I have a job. Like, what's going on with the labor market? And so I think it's those sorts of things, the everyday experiences that sort of feel pie in the sky. Like, when we talk about the Federal Reserve, it's oftentimes very abstract. Um, it's like they're raising interest rates, but what does that really mean? So I think people want to know how things impact them directly. Yeah. So how, what are they worried about right now? They're worried about a job, right? Are they going to have a, a, a job? Are yeah. they optimistic about the future? This is the one thing that really gets me depressed. You know, I hear that younger people aren't optimistic about the future. I mean, no matter, we weren't unhappy in the 70s with things that the United States was doing, but we were optimistic. We never thought like, oh, we're all going to, you know, eventually go to hell in a handbasket. No, I never felt that way yeah. ever. And yet I, I worry sometimes I, I hear that. But yeah. Is that a real concern? I mean, so I've actually written about that before, like doomerism. I feel like that is a really enticing philosophy for people to subscribe to because it sort of removes agency from your life. You're like, oh, everything is just bad and I'm existing within that. Um, so I do see a lot of young people um, applying that, but then I also think there's a lot of hope in the younger generation too. I think people are really excited for what could happen. Um, it's a, you know, you're sowing the seeds that just need to be watered a little yeah. right now. There's a, a belief system that, it is a buy-in. You have to believe that the future is going to be better. In our yeah. case, we cover finance. So I always say, you have to believe capitalism is the is the best, for all its problems, it's the best system that we have for dealing with things. You have to believe that, you know, it, the, the U.S. economy improves, has always improved and gotten better. Lifespans are getting longer. Uh, generally, our people's health is better. Um, you know, the economy may be periods of flatness, but it's always generally still improving. And people look at me like, oh, I guess so, but why don't I feel better then? Yeah. It's, it's hard getting through a certain ad, a mental state. You're right, doomerism is a great word. I love that word. Did you see that, uh, that poll? Like the Fed just released the economic well-being report. Yeah. And I think it's 73% of Americans feel great about their own finances, but 18% feel good about the rest of America. So, you know, those three quarters of the country is like, I feel awesome, but everything around me is really, really bad. Yeah. And so I think that discrepancy and that disparity leads to what you're describing too. It's just like people trend towards doomerism because they think the world around them really sucks even if they're doing okay yeah but you're not a doomerist yourself are no, you no of course I'm not, not. Yeah. No. now you got a new book coming out I not think, yet yeah. but i'm going to give you a chance to plug it Thanks. it's called uh in this economy how yeah. money and markets really work um when is it coming out who's uh, publishing it uh, february 2024 and penguin random house is publishing it yeah and what's it like writing a book? I'll tell you about what I was writing, writing a book. I just, my second book just came out, but I want to know what you think. How, how are you doing with it? <laughs> I remember when we were on the podcast together, yeah. Compound and Friends, you were talking about, you know, writing a book is a journey. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And it sure is a journey. <laughs> um, it's been really fun, but it's been really interesting, like revisiting ideas like GDP, uh, jobs reports, like how do we sort of talk about these things? How do we apply them to 2023 and beyond? Um, so it's taking all these, you know, academic theory ideas and applying them to the real world. So the publishing industry, for those of you who don't know, makes absolutely no economic sense no, a, at all. I wrote a story after the book came out said, thinking of writing a book, you might want to reconsider <laughs> because it doesn't make any economic sense. You do it because you have this intense need to say something. Yeah. And that has to be the overriding motivation for you. Are you good at, at, at long-term planning? I mean, a book is a series of little pieces that you have to keep executing on almost every yeah. day. Are you good at that? I think so, yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, each chapter is its own segment, right? So they can each be read separately. So that's been kind of nice too. I don't have to like weave, weave, weave a story, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. This is her first time on, folks. We'll have you back again.
Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation with Kyla Scanlon from financial education firm Red. And Kyla, this is your first time on ETF Edge, and it's been a delight chatting with you. Uh, you spend a lot of time trying to demystify the financial markets uh, to your followers, and you've become a real social media star. I'm looking at Great numbers here, 166,000 followers on TikTok, 156,000 followers on Twitter, 28,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, YouTube. Uh, as a financial reporter, those are good numbers, uh, believe me, because I compare them to me. Uh, so you're doing really well. Um, tell me about how the, the, your viewers, your listeners are feeling these days about the economy in general and about, for example, inflation. Yeah, I think people are feeling pretty nervous. I think that when they look around and they see, you know, metrics like the labor market is too hot or it's too cold and nobody can really figure out exactly what's going on in the economy, it seems. And then they see inflation hitting all time highs or going back down. But now the Fed has to raise rates again or the Fed's going to pause. There's all these different information sources coming at them from all angles. And so I think people are just trying to figure out what's going on in general. But there is definitely a general sense of nervousness. Do you think, uh, are they optimistic still, though, about the future? I mean, we talked before about doomer, doomsterism, uh, <laughs> which is a word that, yeah. that you've used before, which I, I think is a very relevant word, yeah. that people don't feel that optimistic about the future. Yeah. Um, I hope that's not so. Uh, and you seem to be pointing out what attitudes you need to have to sort of successfully move ahead into the future. But what do you tell people who think, oh, heck, I'm... 30 years old and I'm never going to get Social Security and there's not going to be a job for me. I mean, how do you combat that or should you be combating it? Do you feel the need to? I mean, I try to definitely in the newsletter. Like I'll talk about curiosity and how important that is. I'll talk about hope. I'll talk about the financial value of optimism. And then I'll just point out these discrepancies. I think a lot of times people just need to be told that they're not crazy, that things around them tend to be a little weird, especially post-pandemic. Um, so that's what I try to do is just provide a voice of reason and then show them the path of like what the economy is doing and why it's doing what it's so doing. So in a sense, you're a calming voice, right? I try to be. I try you to know, be. A voice yeah. of reason. You know, I know you're anxious, but let me explain what's going on. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't be anxious, but... You, here's reasons, here's how to look at things better, and it makes people feel better, right? Ideally, yeah, I think so. I think people just want to know what's going on. Like, if you exist in a system that you have no idea what's happening yeah. at any moment, that's going to be confusing. Yeah. It's going to be disorienting. We see a ridiculous amount of disinformation, lies uh, in, in the media these days, on social media, uh, particularly regarding politics and numbers and things like that. Is there lies, disinformation, nonsense about financial issues as well? Yeah, I think it's really valuable to be a doomer. If you are lying to people and if you're getting them scared and then you're like, subscribe to my newsletter where I'll tell you how not to be scared and to profit from being afraid, um, that's a valuable financial strategy. You know, doomerism is also entertainment. It's a form of community. We're very lonely on average. And so people are just finding a lot of solace in, in these um, online pockets of just being negative. I find that amazing that you know, the, the levels of people reporting loneliness is remarkably high. And yet social media, I mean, 15 years ago when we started using it was supposed to do the opposite. It was supposed to create this global community. And what, what 
what's happened? I mean, I think it's still, you have a community, but it's sort of like Apple and these goggles that they have, right? Like we're gonna put on these goggles and we're going to be able to go into the metaverse or VR, AR. And I think that's a good idea, but I think that fundamentally it's still very lonely. Like we don't really have third spaces in the United States. We mm. have home and work and pretty much nothing else. Um, so I think people are just seeking out community and togetherness. And, you know, we had the pandemic, which sort of removed a lot of that for a while. Um, and we haven't been able to find it again. You, um, in addition to tackling big topics like doomsterism, you have some very interesting practical stories. So you did one on using Home Depot as an economic indicator. Explain what, what how you Yeah, so that, that wasn't even my idea. <laughs> um, that is just the idea that if housing is the business cycle, that paper from, I think, Edward Lemer. Yeah. Uh, so Home Depot is essentially the business cycle too because you're able to see not only how uh, the regular people, residential people are, are buying house supplies, but you're also able to see industrial-wise what they're purchasing and how they're purchasing. Um, so if Home Depot has bad earnings, that means that the housing industry might be struggling a little bit or that homeowners are feeling a little weird, and that'll be a great indicator for the rest of the economy. Yeah, let me, uh, last week I uh, was at a conference where I, Gary Gensler spoke, the head of the SEC, uh, and this was a, a day after he announced uh, legal action yeah. against uh, Binance and against Coinbase, and it was remarkable how strident he was about the entire crypto industry was rife with, he called it frauds and hucksters, he used those words, and compared it to some of the silliness that went on in the 1920s with people selling fraudulent property in Florida. Uh, and one of the reasons the SEC was created in the 1930s was there was so much fraud in the 1920s. They created the SEC to create legal protections for people buying things like land and securities. Um, but he has intimated before that, for example, a lot of these exchanges uh, are not operating legally because they're selling securities, um, uh, tokens that he believes are securities, but he was very strident. The tone has gotten harsher. Mm -hmm. This suit against Binance, it, it seems to imply criminal activity. Um, it, it was quite serious uh, in my opinion, and yet the, the Department of Justice did not follow on with any, any criminal suit at all. There was none. Um, so I'm sort of curious about what you think is going on right now and how people should be looking at this. I mean, it's really interesting because for the past few years, you've had big institutional investors going into these companies. Like Coinbase went public, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're a publicly traded company, and it's pretty bizarre to file against them. But Gary Gensler came into office, I think, three days after Coinbase went public. And so he wasn't in office when, when they did go public. So I think that discrepancy can be answered with that. But then it's also this big question about are crypto securities, are they commodities? And it seems like the SEC is like, no, these are securities um, and they're going to be regulated as such. Because for a long time, the crypto industry has been looking for regulation. And I feel like they, it's been dragged out quite a bit and it's been regulation by, or by litigation, like just lawsuits. Um, so I think this is sort of the end path for how to be regulated. Do you think if, if Coinbase would try to go public today, that Gensler would try to stop them I, arguing that yeah, they... I think so. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the lawsuits against them are, are pretty intense yeah. and it just shows the path that he wants to take it. How should people view cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I, I, I've said I'm a, big, I'm a big bull on blockchain and the possibility, sort of neutral on cryptocurrencies, but young people love investing in cryptocurrencies. What's, what's the right way to look at this? I think it's 
So getting to the point of like blockchain, I think it's the philosophy of what it could be. I think that Gary Gensler is right that there's been a lot of fraud. SBF, for example, FTX, that whole debacle, that is sort of the crypto industry at large. Like it just became really ripe for bad financial actors. So I think that it's the idea that we could have a decentralized system, that we could have these gut checks on how things actually work, um, and that we could have a blockchain uh, powering all of that. Um, but I think that it'll take some time for that to actually come to fruition. All right. Kyla, thank you very much. Really enjoyed chatting with you. I hope you'll come back again and chat with us again. Absolutely. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani, and thank you for listening. Make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.